What a great blessing it is for us to be together this morning, to be able to share in the gospel and remembering the great sacrifice our Lord has made on our behalf, singing these songs together to exalt Him. It's a blessing to be together as family. I know so many are, are traveling to visit their families. We're blessed with the presence of Ben's family here with us today. But we're all God's family, and that's what makes it such a wonderful thing for us to be able to come together to share in these good things that He's provided for us. You may be thinking from the reading that this is a Christmas sermon. Uh, it is a Christmas sermon that is not a Christmas sermon. While we are thinking, and while most of the world is thinking about our Lord's birth, we might as well take advantage of the opportunity to be talking about our Lord, and specifically today we're going to be talking about His parents, Joseph and Mary. I wanted to share with you a lesson that I found very encouraging. It's a lesson that's arranged by one of our Brazilian brethren, Ricardo Neves dos Santos. He is a school teacher, been serving for about 20 years in a small congregation near Sao Paulo, and I've had the good pleasure over the last six months to be involved on every first Saturday of the month in some studies that are aimed at helping young people make better decisions, young Christians, make better decisions in their lives as they're serving the Lord and beginning their, their walk with the Lord. And a few months ago, we did a study on marriage and on God's roles for men and women in marriage and how the view of marriage is so distorted. In Brazil, it's as bad as it is here, if not much worse. Uh, it's such a sensual society, and certainly it's getting that way here. But this lesson was so encouraging to me, and I knew right away when I heard it that I wanted to share it with you. And so uh, I hope you'll forgive me if I slip into Portuguese a couple times during the lesson. I may call Mary Maria one, one time or other. But I want to share as closely as I can with the way that he's arranged this lesson. He answers some questions I had about this relationship with Joseph and Mary, things that have been troubling me for years. And I really think it's helpful, this study, as we look at the roles that God gave to men and women in marriage. First off, we ought to be thankful to God that men and women are different. Now, the world wants us to see that men and women are the same, and in fact, some men are actually women and some women are actually men. We can be so thankful to God that that's not the case. Men and women are different for a reason. We understand also that get the clicker to work, that we are not self-sufficient, that men and women actually need each other. God didn't make the world all of men. He didn't make it all of women. He made two different sexes for a very specific reason. And we need one another, whether or not we're willing to recognize that truth. But those of us who recognize the, the scriptures and understand God's will will understand, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, that neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. We need one another, and God made us the way he did on purpose and so that we would be uh, able to serve one another. We have to, have to understand then that we are not self-sufficient. God never expected us to be. In the natural world, when we talk about the animals, there are some animals that can walk uh, at birth that are self-sufficient to go on living their own lives within just a few days. But we do understand that among the irrational beasts, a union between male and female is often unstable. That there is no uh, set pair for life in most species. That certainly cannot be the case among human beings. Among the animals, once the, the female has been uh, impregnated or once the, the, the offspring have come, often the men are either, the males are even pushed out by the women sometimes. They're not not involved as much in the upbringing of the children. 
But certainly that cannot be the case among human beings. When we are born, human babies are fragile and are entirely dependent on their parents. Babies would not survive if they were left and abandoned completely. So we need to understand that humans are among the slowest of living beings to reach adulthood. And obviously Satan is not going to wait until adulthood to attack us. John 8:44 says he's a murderer from the beginning and certainly from the beginning of our lives he's seeking ways to bring us into death. As we think about that, he knows that if he can put men and women against each other, one of his strategies, if he can set men and women against each other, that a great part of his work is already done because as children are born into this world where men and women don't get along, where men and women aren't involved in the creation of children, Satan has already won that soul. <laughs> he knows that most of his work is going to be done. And so one of his strategies to bring about the downfall of the human race is to give this great idea that marriage is a lost cause. <laughs> That's what Satan wants to sell us. And his propaganda machine is seen visibly in people who are giving themselves all kinds of vile passions. We've been reading about it in Romans chapter 1. That they give themselves to whatever feels right for the moment, and then they go off and find something else that's the next best thing. They give themselves to these desires. They may ab abort their children because they're an inconvenience. They may abandon them entirely once they're born. And even if the children do survive, they grow up in a home that's broken where there's not a man and a woman as a reference of love and a caring relationship. And so they're more and more vulnerable each generation to Satan's uh, desires and his whimsy to try to gain them to himself. And while God has allowed us to face the consequences of our own actions and our own sins, he has not completely abandoned men and he certainly hasn't abandoned babies. Psalm 68, verses 5 and 6, talk about God's plan for babies, if you will. He hasn't abandoned babies at all. His intention is that babies should have a mother and father to take care of them. And he is himself, Psalm 68, verse 5, a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. God's desire is for families in the union of families. In fact, his description of the church is as a family, as we mentioned before, because that is a unit that's supposed to function according with his plan. And so, as we think about marriage, as we look at our own marriages, or some of us who are young enough to be thinking about one day we may become married, we need to understand that as men and as women, God has given us specific roles for the marital union. And he wants us to recognize that he is accompanying that, that he has made this sacred bond, that he created for the good and for the protection of mankind. In Malachi chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, we're told that God seeks godly offspring. And God is saying, take heed to your spirit. Let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. God puts a lot of weight on the importance of marriage. And he wants the marital relationship to work. And he's planned it so that it will. And he pays attention to what's going on in marriages. Men and women will have to give account as to how they've performed the responsibilities given by God for their roles. 
When we say that men and women have different roles, what we're really saying is that each one has their own set of responsibilities that are specific to them. To be responsible means that you are capable of responding to a need, to a situation. That's what responsibility is. God has given us responsibility. He's given us the capacity to respond. And he's also given us the capacity then to decide about important aspects of our life and about our life in family. And we are going to have to, to uh, answer to God for the way we've done that. Hebrews 4 verse 13 says, We're all naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We'll be giving account to how we decide in, within our families and how we act within our families. In order to do that well then, it's imperative that we have a clear understanding of our roles as men and women. And so it is intimately tied to our purposes here. He's given us gender and he's put us here to work together. Then part of our purpose here involves our gender and working with the other gender. And God is accompanying that. So as we think about Joseph and Mary, what can we learn from them to gain a clearer understanding of the roles that God has designed us for? This is such a beautiful picture of marriage, even though it starts out extremely rocky. First thing to understand is that God has entrusted the greatest gift ever given to mankind into Joseph and Mary's care. God sent his son to be born among a man and a woman, born into a family to be cared, by that, cared for by that family and brought up to adulthood where he would then succeed in, in fulfilling his mission. But he had to be taken care of at first. God entrusted him into the hands of Joseph and Mary. Now we know, honestly, we don't get to choose who our parents are going to be. That, there's no way we can do that. We're born before we recognize anything, and then we decide later what happened to us and how we came about. But we do get to choose, as women, who will be the father of our children, and as men, who will be the mother of our children. And that's what we're going to look at a little bit today, is Joseph and Mary, in choosing each other, what did they see in each other? What can we learn from the story about what they saw in each other? Because we need to understand that we are making decisions when we marry about who will be the father of our future children. If we do that within the structure of a good marriage, we give great advantage to our children. And certainly when we're talking about raising them for the Lord, there is no better place to raise them than within a stable marriage that shows off God's plan. Certainly doing so outside of the marital union terribly disadvantages children. It doesn't give them the kind of foothold they would need to be able to start off in a good place. And so it's for the power of this responsibility, this decision that is so powerful that affects the lives of those who will come into the relationship as children, as fruit of the relationship, that men and women will give account to God. So let's examine what we know. In the Old Testament here, marital infidelity often met with death by stoning. Uh, God was very serious about marriage, and he wanted everyone else to be able to witness and see how serious he is. And so there was a public stoning that took place in the case of marital infidelity. And that's really true even if the couple were only engaged to be married still. So I want us to look uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy 22 verses 23 and 24. Now you might think that's only in the case of a, of a full-fledged marriage, but even in the case of an engagement, this would be the right. Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 and 24. If a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband, and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, 
Then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city. You shall stone them to death with stones, the young woman because she did not cry out in the city, and the man because he humbled his neighbor's wife. So you shall put away the evil from among you. So even in the case of Joseph and Mary here, where they're only engaged to be married, where they're betrothed, stoning is a real possibility in the case of marital infidelity. A young girl who's not yet committed is sexually immoral. The man involved must pay her dowry and marry her. She doesn't belong to a man yet, then she then belongs to him. The point is, God is making sure that she is taken care of so that the offspring that come will be taken care of. God is providing for a stability where an instability began. It's interesting to see how God is taking care of a marital type relationship. There is the opportunity, however, for the father in this case to refuse to let the man marry her. What kind of father would want the kind of son who would take advantage of his daughter to be his son-in-law? unless he sees in him some good, something that's redeemable. Maybe he's going to refuse that. In this case, he still must pay the dowry, the, the indication may be, so that this child would be taken care of, that may be the result of his immorality with her. So we find out in the story that Mary is with child. Now, she knows, and Joseph knows, that they've been pure. They've kept pure through, through the time of their betrothal, and yet... She's with child. Joseph sees that she's pregnant. Imagine his sadness at discovering her pregnancy. Can you imagine? He knows he hasn't been with her. And so he's got to be imagining that the only way she became pregnant is that she's been unfaithful to him. Can you imagine the emotions that would bring? I can't imagine that as, as I think about my own marriage, how that would affect me to know that my wife had been unfaithful, that my bride, that my future bride in this case, would be unfaithful. But notice, he chose something that would go against perhaps his emotion at the moment. He chose not to make a public example of her. He certainly could have found that within his rights. Of course, making a public example of her would mean that she would be stoned to death. We're told in the Bible that he did this because he was a just or a righteous man, Matthew 1.19. Him being a just man did not want to make a public example of her. That was something that troubled me, because I would think of a just man as someone who's going to follow the letter of the law. That's what justice is, correct? But he chose not to require Mary's death. And if you think about that for just a moment, he would have been just in following the law. He would have been a just man. He would have been righteous according to the law. Yet at the same time, ironically, he would have been responsible for the murder of two innocent people, both Mary and her child. Because of his emotional reaction, he may have put to death two people who were innocent just by following the law. So he chose to temper his right for justice with love. And what we see in the midst of this is that God has committed the life of his son into the hands of this Galilean carpenter. He's also committed the life of his son's mother into the hands of this Galilean carpenter. God saw something redeeming in Joseph, and we will too as we pay attention to what happens in this story. Joseph was an amazing man and well chosen by Mary for her husband. Joseph didn't cling to his rights as a betrayed husband. Boy, can you imagine the anger he must have first felt how he had taken this on the heart that his wife 
was unfaithful. And yet, even so, he didn't want to kill her. <laughs> He's certainly adhering to the wisdom of the Proverbs that says, He who acts swiftly, he who has swift feet, sins. <laughs> Psalm 19 and Proverb 19 and verse 2. Rather than crying out for justice, he acted out of love that covers a multitude of sins. He could have demanded her stoning, although he couldn't find the man that she had been with. He would have been, needed to have been stoned as well. He had no evidence of infidelity except for this growing stomach. And yet he could have cried out for that, but he chose to act out of love. God ordains that husbands love their wives and not treat them with bitterness. It's amazing when we think about Joseph here. The opposite of bitterness is sweetness. Sweetness is a quality that's often, if you'll bear with the term, taught out of boys. Boys are erroneously educated to be people that don't cry. Men, men shouldn't cry, so don't cry. You need to be aggressive. You need to take possession of what is yours. You shouldn't let others get the advantage. You always have to take the advantage in every situation. And so when they become men, they try to apply this same method, this method into their, their relationships, whether it's during the time of their betrothal or into their marriages. They always try to get the upper hand. They want to dominate over the women because they're told that anything else is weakness. And so terrible consequences come as a result. As we saw in Colossians 3, a married man needs to be sweet, not bitter, in his treatment of his wife. That's not a characteristic of a weak person. It's really the characteristic of someone who has got the moral fortitude that it takes to control his aggression. When he chooses to act with sweetness instead of aggression, with all that testosterone behind him, pushing him forward. We see Joseph with great self-control when it seemed as though his bride had been unfaithful to him. He used such control, didn't demand his rights, but sought what was best for her and for this unborn child. Can you imagine what kind of husband he is going to be when other troubles may come up and he gives the benefit of the doubt and how he's going to treat the child that's growing up under his hand. As we look at the newspapers and the television, we hear cases all the time about young men who beat their girlfriends or their wives or killed them just recently in, in Pittsburgh News. A young man killed his girlfriend. Another man was killed by his girlfriend. You have this fighting going on between men and women. A young woman who is wise, is seeking a husband, will not seek for someone who already shows signs of aggression, who is always talking about violence and things that are violent. The Lord himself says that the Pharisees were speaking of what their heart was full of, and young men who speak and demonstrate violence are showing what their heart is full of. And a young woman, as she's seeking for a husband, won't stand for that. Sweetness ought not to be taught out of boys. Boys ought to be taught to be boys, but they ought to be taught to control their aggression and treat others with sweetness. Sweetness is not a weakness, but it's actually a sign of moral strength. Jesus was meek 
and sweet in the way he dealt with others. Joseph, Joseph showed this strength of self-control when he was considering Mary's infidelity. We also see that God has ordained wives to submit to their husbands in the same context there in Colossians 3, that the women are to submit themselves to their husbands as to the Lord. And a wise woman then is not going to seek out a tyrant who's going to rule over her by domination, by violence, but she'll seek out, as we've seen with Mary and Joseph, a God-fearing gentleman. That term's fallen out of use. <laughs> You're such a gentleman. There's a meaning to that word. It's a man who's under control, <laughs> who guides with love under control. Not a weakling, a gentleman, a man who's chosen to act in such a way toward others that he has this meek and gentle spirit, although he has this power under control. Now think about this for a moment. If Joseph decides to put her away secretly, in the end, that's going to reflect badly on him and not on her. It's not going to resolve the problem because her stomach is going to continue to grow. Others around are going to notice that he didn't stone her. He didn't put her to death, so he must be the guilty party. In fact, perhaps the father rejected him, made him pay the dowry, and sent him off according to Exodus 22. That's what others are going to begin thinking because he hasn't chosen his right. They're probably going to deduct that it was Joseph that was rejected, deduce that it was Joseph that was rejected and not the other way around as he actually was putting away Mary secretly. But I want you to think about this. In his discretion, he has not only saved Mary's life because she wasn't then stoned, <laughs> he saved the child's life He's also taken the dishonor on himself instead of allowing her and her family to be dishonored. That is a real man. That's a man who's not looking at what others are going to think of him. He's concerned with what's best for Mary. What a beautiful act. It's so hard for us perhaps to understand this in our setting today. But that's exactly what Joseph was doing. He was taking on himself the burden of having been immoral against his, his future wife. And so even before Jesus was born to him, we see Joseph acting like Jesus, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body. Joseph was taking Mary's sin, perceived sin, on himself. He wasn't reviling against her who had abandoned him, who had abandoned their relationship in his mind. Yet he's protecting her. <laughs> what a blessing. And Mary, as we look at her, she's a flower among thorns. <laughs> she's intelligent, we can see. She's intuitive. She's not reactive, as we might expect. <laughs> she's characterized as one who ponders things deeply in her heart. The shepherds came to visit Jesus at his birth in Luke chapter 2. And we see as she's seeing all of these things happening, she'd already been told by the angel what was going on. But in Luke 2 verses 18 and 19, we're told, All those who heard about the child marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. And Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. That's a phrase that's going to be used several times about her. 
later when Jesus is 12 and he stays behind at the temple. Let's read in Luke 2, starting at verse 48. Uh, they've come back and found him now. When they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? They did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. There's a couple of interesting details here. The first is, Mary honors Joseph here, calling him Jesus' father. To Jesus, in this private conversation, she knows that Joseph is not actually Jesus' father, but he is the father that God has committed Jesus to here on the earth. And she honors Joseph then, calling him Jesus' father. And though she doesn't fully understand everything that's going on again, she's had these revelations, but this is an overwhelming thing. She keeps it all in her heart. She's pondering, she's considering these things deeply, as an intelligent woman will. We also see that she was not emotional. She didn't act and react on her emotions, but she is a stable woman, which is a must for any family that wants to maintain a healthy home. When she's faced with tough facts, she accepts God's will. Romans 8:28 says that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord, who are called according to his purposes. She didn't see things as randomly happening to her. As these bad things were taking place, she didn't see that as, as evil. She saw God taking care of her. And even faced with the possibility of stoning, Joseph could have put her away and could have had her stoned. She exalted God as she's gone off now. You can imagine her belly is going to start growing. People are going to start talking. So we're just told that in verse 39 of Luke 1 that she went off to the hill country with haste. She's going to go hide this, this fact that would make others talk, that would give people a reason to speak ill. Where she goes off here to be with Elizabeth, perhaps people aren't going to be aware. Joseph's away. Perhaps they've already gotten married and we didn't hear. It's not going to look like such an indiscretion. It's not going to bring infamy on Joseph nor on her. But here she is exalting God, even as she's still under the possible threat of a stoning for infidelity. It says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. The secret to her stability is exalting God in her heart as her hope. She's not looking at the circumstances. She's not looking at how good she's been. She's looking at how good God has been and exalts him in her heart. She's absolutely an ideal con candidate for the work of childbearing. I think that bears something to talk about. This idea of childbearing is not just birthing children. It's the idea of rearing them, of raising them up to the Lord, which the world despises, this concept of childbearing. Even those who are having children often despise the concept of childbearing. For women to end a career in order to raise children, how foolish is that? Go after your career. Recently, an actress uh, who was getting an award said how grateful she was for her abortions because she could never have reached the, the pinnacle of her career that she reached if she had had children in the way. <laughs> Celebrating and shouting your abortions, that's a thing today. It's incredible to me. It's seen as foolish that you would take time off to raise children. They don't understand the error of Pharaoh's daughter. She gave away her adopted son Moses to another to raise, happened to be his mother, <laughs> She said, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. She paid someone else to raise her child. The woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. 
Sounds perfectly normal and fine, but think. She trusted her work as a mother to a third party, and she lost the most precious time she had for influencing Moses and turning him into a true Egyptian. That's what she would want as Pharaoh's daughter, right? To bring the most influence of what she wants for her son, she gave that to someone else and paid them to do it. So that later, even though Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians, Stephen says in his great address in Acts 7, it wasn't enough to undo his Hebrew mother's instruction in his infancy. <laughs> he was a Hebrew, <laughs> and he knew it, and it made him different, and it made him become the early savior of God's people. Mary didn't despise her role as a childbearer. She saw it as an honor. She was honored to have this. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 says that godly women will be preserved through the bearing of children, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. And so looking back at the promise that was given to Eve, the Savior came about because Eve accepted her new role, that even in pain she would be bringing forth children, because she knew that one of those days, one of her seed would become this Savior that was coming. She brought about salvation. Women who give themselves to the role of teaching young children to serve the Lord, Help the spread of the gospel and the furtherance of young men who become preachers, young men who become elders, women who become elders' wives and support preachers and, and travel around the world to do that. It begins with this mission of motherhood, this work of childbearing. Titus chapter 2 encourages the development of mothers among Christians. Regarding the more experienced Christian women, they're told they should admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. What a blessing to have Christian mothers. Of course, it's evident that a good husband is imperative in order to do this work also. How can a mother fulfill her role well in a home that's constantly at risk? How can she be happy in her, in her work at home if the family is always seeming like it's going to die of starvation? Because there's an irresponsible husband who doesn't pay attention to his expenses, doesn't make out any kind of a budget. He's not transparent with what he does with his money. He, it's his money, after all. He can use it for what he wants to. And often he is unstable, can't hold down a job because he's lazy or insubordinate. He wants to be the one in charge. He's got to be the one with the advantage, as men are taught. How will she find... True satisfaction in cooking, in cleaning, taking care of his clothing if she believes he's always out with some other woman. How is it going to be possible for her to submit if his attitude is one of such aggression? No, no thought for the rest of his family. And that's why it's so hard for most of the women in the world to think about this word submission. It's so hard because who wants to submit to a man like that? In order to avoid such problems, first off, men need to wake up and grow up. Men need to act like real men and quit demanding their rights, as we saw Joseph didn't demand his, and to act in a way that's consistent with the gospel and with raising children and in guiding wives toward heaven. And young women ought not to be content in marrying someone who is just got a cute package, but doesn't think about the content of what's inside the package. 
Submission is a command of God. Women will choose who's going to be their leader as they submit, and they'll be responsible for the decisions they've made. It's their lives that are, that are at hand, and so they shouldn't deliver their lives into the hand of a man who is not going to guide them toward heaven. But what about Joseph? What about Joseph? What did Mary see in him? She chose a responsible and stable man. What we see that Mary chose in Joseph is a dependable husband and father. He received the angel's message in Matthew chapter 1 saying, Don't be afraid to take Mary to you as wife because, well, she's pregnant, but it's from the Holy Spirit. What a hard thing to hear. What a strange thing to hear. Yet he's receiving this message not from Mary, but from an angel. It's not Mary trying to come up with excuses. He's received a message from God, albeit a hard one to hear. But he responds like a real man. First off, he obeys God. That's what real men do. He takes full responsibility for Mary and her baby. It's not his. He takes responsibility. So many men don't even take responsibility for their own children, much less those of others. And yet here's Joseph obeying God and taking full responsibility. Well, shortly after their marriage, they had to travel to, or after their uh, uh, engagement, they had to travel to Bethlehem because of this decree that's gone out from Caesar about the census. It's not something they would have chosen necessarily. And by the time they get there, there's nowhere for them to stay. And she has to finish out her pregnancy in an uncomfortable place. And we know that finally when Jesus is born, he's even laid in a manger because there is no real place for him to be, uh, be placed. We understand then that they were in an uncomfortable place at first. And yet, within the time that they're in Bethlehem, we see that Joseph went about quickly improving the situation they found themselves in. In Matthew 2 and verse 11, by the time that the, uh, the wise men come from the east, they come into a home where Jesus and Mary are. A different place than where he was first born. Not only that, he took responsibility for taking Mary to fulfill all of God's birth laws that we read about in Leviticus 12. That when a young Jewish boy is born, the mother must be seven days in isolation. On the eighth day, the child is circumcised and gets his name mentioned publicly. And after that, the woman has to stay another 33 days in seclusion. After that, they go to the temple and they offer the yearling lamb and the burnt offering of doves or turtle doves as a, as a sin sacrifice. In the case of poor couple, they may offer only the doves and turtle doves, which is what we see Mary and Joseph doing, which indicates that they hadn't got the means to provide for themselves yet. They certainly haven't received the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh at this point, or they would have had enough to have given uh, a rich man's offering. But Joseph takes her and fulfills all of the corresponding birth laws. Though he was poor, he provided for the family at the minimum 41 days in Bethlehem. They're traveling for the census. This was not their plan originally. But she has the child while they're there. And he's able to provide for at least 41 days of time staying in, in uh, Bethlehem. Shortly after, he gets the message divinely instructed that Herod is going to kill the baby. 
So Joseph ups and moves the family to Egypt. Think about how hard that would be for Mary, whose family is behind in Jerusalem. I was born in Louisville, Kentucky. I was supposed to, supposed to live in California. My dad was on his way to California with my mom. She wanted to stop and say goodbye to her sisters. They stayed in Kentucky. <laughs> Mary is near her family. But she trusts God, and she trusts her husband, who's shown himself to be a good man. And she goes with him off even as far as Egypt. <laughs> Women who trust their husbands are willing to follow them wherever God leads the family to go. Women who are unwilling want to stay always really close by so they have a resource to fall back on. Men and women don't always have to agree on every single thing. But if they want to have a harmonious life together, at least they need to have the same worldview and understand the same purpose for their lives. The worldview and their purpose together is not something that they ought to just decide after they've gone on the honeymoon. <laughs> It's something that needs to be determined during the time of the engagement and absolutely defined before marriage happens. Otherwise, if they're both looking at different purposes and going in different directions, it's inevitable that as they walk, eventually they're going to be pointing in different directions and they will separate. They'll separate in their minds, they'll separate in their hearts, and find that they'll separate in where they're headed. Choose someone like Joseph chose in, Maria, in Mary. Choose someone like Mary chose in Joseph. Someone who honors God and is willing to walk with you in the direction of heaven. That's what they had. If husband and wife have the same worldview and same vision, they'll walk together always. Finally, last thing to consider here. The people of Nazareth recognize Jesus as the carpenter in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, and they speak of his other brothers and sisters who are there as well. They call him the carpenter, which indicates that Joseph obviously taught his trade to his adopted son. Isn't that an interesting thing to consider? We know Jesus' mission wasn't carpentry, yet Joseph trained him and equipped him to be useful in serving others and seeing to their needs. Joseph made sure also that in doing this, that Jesus didn't begin his adult life at square one or at square zero with nothing to fall back on. This is something that we see as part of Joseph's character. And young people should not be ashamed to learn from their parents what their parents have done. That's what God has put us here for, is to build each other up and to help each other to walk out into the world with a foothold already. And from what we can gather from the Gospels, Joseph must have died fairly young, but he left his family very well prepared because of the kind of character that he had. We can see that he had married a strong woman who profoundly loved God. That he was able then to be calm and tranquil as he went out to do his work because he knew she was a helper who was capable, who would give him the kind of necessary support, taking care of the home, feeding and taking care of the children while he was gone. We see that they had many other children, as I mentioned in Mark 6 and verse 3. So that even when Joseph had died, Mary was able to keep the family together serving God. By the time we see them in Acts chapter 1, they're all gathered together. They're praying and they're waiting for the promise of God to come down. <laughs> Joseph had created a stable environment and Mary had created a stable environment in the family because both of them were looking first at God 
and found godly traits in the people that they were going to marry. It could have been awful for Mary when it was found out that she was pregnant. And yet Joseph, with restraint and love and the sweetness to guide his family, accepted God's will and went forward with her as his wife. It's amazing to think about this couple. We typically only think of them when we think about the Christmas story. But it's a beautiful picture of God's will for marriage when we see just how stable these two were. Clearly, the Lord believes in the blessing of marriage and family. He entrusted his own son, the Savior, into the hands of a couple that are people just like me and here. That's what they were. They were servants of God. They were trying to do what was right. And God entrusted marriage and the growth of this child through that marriage. It's interesting to me how marriage and family, according to his design, is the most close resemblance we have to what he wants in his relationship with us. I just want to finish out with these words from Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, starting at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And now verse 30. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. From the beginning, when God designed marriage, and he quotes here from Genesis 2, he's looking at the relationship he wants with us through his son. We need to understand what a model that is. In fact, in Matthew chapter 28, when he sends out the apostles to teach the world, he says to baptize them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. To become a part of the family, that's what this is about. Would you allow him to bring you into his family of blessing this very day? Do you recognize that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you be willing to come forward confessing his name, repenting of your sins, and being baptized into the family of God? We'd love to help you do that this very day if you would respond to the gospel of his Son. If you are a Christian already and you see where there's need for work, we've all got need for work, there's no shame in coming forward and confessing. We'd love to help you with that as well. Whatever your need is, make it known while we stand and sing this song, Bring Christ Your Broken Life.